Now turn with me this morning in your Bible to the book of Colossians. And we're going to read in Colossians chapter 1. We're going to read from verse 23 right through to Colossians chapter 2, 1 to 5. Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. Let's hear the word of God for all online. The words will come up on the screen. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Whereof I did a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words, for though I be absent in the flesh, Yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of his own precious and infallible word. Now this morning, we are recommencing with our series of sermons in the book of Colossians. And today my text is taken from Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. I've entitled today's sermon, The Conflict and Comfort of the True Gospel Preacher. Now in the past I've told you that Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, right through to Colossians 2, verse 5, the Apostle Paul is writing in the first person plural. Look at the last phrase in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. It says, Whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Notice how he puts in his own name. And in this whole portion, Colossians 1, 23 to Colossians 2, 5, the, Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, 
highlighting in detail the kind of ministry that he exercised among men. He's giving us a little glimpse into his life and work. You see, these verses, we could really describe them as biographical. Undoubtedly, they reveal to us what is exactly upon the heart and mind of the man of God. In the past weeks prior to Christmas 2021, we thought of the faithful ministry of God's suffering servant, verses 24 and 25. And then we thought about the faithful ministry of God's preaching servant, Colossians 1, 26 and 27. We tried to understand something of the great and glorious mystery as proclaimed by Paul. We asked ourselves, what is this mystery? And of course, the heart of the mystery is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Then we came to verses 28 and 29, and we thought of the great goal of the true gospel preacher. And then we closed chapter 1 with uh, a message on the experiencing the amazing power of God. Uh, Paul said, according to his working which worketh in me mightily. Now it's clearly evident that Colossians 2 verse 1 is a continuation of this biographical sketch of the true man of God. I believe the Apostle Paul is writing one letter under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And he adds this as he opens chapter 2, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you. For I would that ye knew. It's a kind of an open formula. He wanted them to know something more. That as a minister of the gospel, yes, he has suffered for them. Not penal sufferings, but actual sufferings because of his um, stand for Christ and the true gospel. And he wants them to know also that he lived to proclaim the great glorious mystery of Christ. And that as a preacher, he had one goal and aim in his life. And that was to warn every man that he met. To teach every man that he met. And that he might present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Now he adds. Yes, it's true I've suffered greatly for you. Yes, it's true I've preached the mystery of Christ in the gospel. Yes, it's true I've sought to fulfill this great goal of um, preaching the, the gospel under the amazing power of God which worketh in me mightily. Now he's adding another layer to this. And it's this, that he had a great burden for them. Listen to the words, for I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you. And for them it let us see you, and for as many as have seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, and of the Father, and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Hence I entitled the message, The Conflict and Comfort of the Gospel Preacher. We could really call Paul a man with a big heart for the people of God. I want you to think of three things this morning. Notice firstly, the picture of this conflict. What does he say? For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you. Now, we'll pause there. The the word conflict literally means agonizing. It's not just that he tells them 
I'm agonizing for you. But he describes it. Notice the adjective. He calls it great conflict. It's a real powerful principle that's working his heart and life. It's part and parcel of who Paul really is as a minister of the gospel. See, the word conflict, as I've said, it means agonizing, literally. But I want you to think of a wrestler. And he's in combat with an opponent, and it's arm-to-arm, close wrestling. And the opponent is trying to bring him down. And Paul's aware of that. And he's facing and experiencing This great struggle as he wrestles on their behalf in his heart and soul. As I've said, it's as if he's wrestling on their behalf. Remember, he's talking about the ministry. He's talking about him being a minister of the gospel on their behalf. And he's not only suffers for them, and he not only speaks to them, But he is striving for them in the sense that he's great, this great agony of heart and soul. I'm experiencing a great struggle for you at Colossae. That's what he's saying. Not only for you at Colossae, but all at Laodicea. And for all who haven't seen my face in the flesh. Because remember, not everyone at Colossae had met Paul or seen Paul in the flesh. Paul, remember, at this time is a thousand uh, miles away. He's in prison. And yet he's telling them, not that he was focused on his imprisonment or focused on himself. His great concern was for them. He's in agony of soul. He's wrestling for them that they might be edified and and helped and encouraged. And and I believe this is part of his act of laboring. He he is active here. he's, He's actively engaged in this great conflict for them. You see, his conflict involved keeping the gospel pure. His conflict for them was to see that they made progress and go on in the Christian life and grow and be strong in the Lord. His great conflict was to see the enemy of souls defeated and his goals and plans thwarted. You see, Paul knew that the spiritual deception was real. He knew that the tactic of the enemy would be never let up. He knew that the tactic of the enemy is to never play fair. He knows something of the subtlety and strategy of the enemy. It's all an attempt to dethrone Christ, to destroy the church, to to disannul the the, the Christian faith and its proclamation and in its practice. So he's writing to them. And the apostle Paul wants them to know that he's experiencing A very great intense conflict in his heart and soul for them. He has a very vital goal for them. As I've said, remember, he's still talking about his personal life and public ministry. I have a great conflict on your behalf. I have a heartfelt love and concern for you all. For for your spiritual well-being, including the people I have never met. And therefore, I'm praying for you all. You see, true prayer undergirded Paul's whole ministry. That was his secret. He not only placed an emphasis on prayer, but also a very strong emphasis on teaching and standing for the truth. 
My aim is in Christ because of the danger of being carried away by false teachers who pray in the flock. And, and I want to encourage you to be strong and to stand firm in Christ and be devoted to him and be disciplined by him. See, this was not only a goal that Paul had for himself, but this is a goal that he had for the life and witness of the church at Colossae, Laodicea, Heriopolis, and even for the church of the New Testament. See, having a goal is very important. Remember in Proverbs uh, chapter um, 29 and um, verse 28, we read the words, where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Think of that principle, where there's no vision, the people perish. And everyone needs a vision. And Paul had a vision. We need to keep the gospel pure. We need to see the Christians make progress. We need to see the enemy defeated. We, 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 we need to see the power of God at work amongst ourselves. Everyone needs a vision. I think of a story that I heard of a child at school. A child called Timothy. Life was hard for Timothy. He was bullied. He was picked on. He was always getting into trouble. He hated school. He didn't want to be there. But one day he was in the RE class and, and the teacher said this, God has a wonderful plan for you. And you need to realize your place in that plan. And in order to realize your place in that plan, you need to pray about God's plan for your life. Timothy went to bed that night and he dreamt and his dream involved him becoming a medical doctor. And he got up the next morning and he felt this burden that he should pray about it. And he prayed, Lord, help me to become a medical doctor. Lord, help me to be the best student I can be at school. And that poor student who was failing almost in every class began to get straight A's. What was his secret? He realized that God has an amazing plan and he began to play about that plan. And he wanted to find God's place for him in that plan. And you see, that's what consumed Paul. He knew God had a plan for Colossae. The individuals there, the church there. He got a plan for Laodicea. God had a plan for Heropolis. He knew the devil also has a plan for Colossae and his people. And Paul was concerned that God's plan would be fulfilled and realized in them. And it led to prayer. And that's what this great conflict involved. It involved agonizing in prayer. He is sharing his goal and his vision for them and with them. The goal he wanted to see fulfilled in their lives. Oh, that we could realize that God has a wonderful plan for us as individuals. God has a wonderful plan for us as a congregation. God has a wonderful plan for this denomination. Do we realize it? Do we regard it to such a degree that we'll, we'll give ourselves to prayer? And we'll use all the faculties of our being and use all of our power to, to see it fulfilled? You see, many of God's people today have fallen into despair. Many are discouraged. 
Many are depressed. And they, and they see failure and sin on every hand. Let me give you an illustration. There's a pastor who took up a small work in the United States of America. This church about to close. Dwindling numbers. Little finance. Nobody coming through the door. And the presbytery's attitude was, close the door. There's no hope for it. Go somewhere else. But a pastor with a big heart and a burden for that very small work that everybody had given up on, took it on. And years later, there was a thriving congregation, about 150 people attending, and somebody asked him the secret. How did you turn it round? And this is what he said. Broken hearts, bent knees, and wet eyes. Broken hearts, bent knees, and wet eyes. And oh, that we could learn the secret individually and as a congregation and even as a denomination that the leadership would rediscover. Here's God's secret. Broken hearts, bent knees, and wet eyes. Remember, we're in a conflict. And in the conflict, it's so easy to lose faith and to lose the battle and lose our way and give up. It was Dr. Peter Masters who said that in every age there's a battle and the church has lost some and won some. We're going to hear more about that next week. And this I say, he says in verse 4, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. And we live in an age of spiritual deception. And you see, Paul knew that the only way for this goal that he had for this church was to be realized was to allow this great conflict in his heart and life to intensify and blossom that, that led him to prayer. That's the picture of the great conflict. Notice, secondly, the purpose of this great conflict. You see, in light of Paul's goal and vision for the church, as I've said, he gave himself to prayer on their behalf. That prayer involved agony of soul. He describes it as great. It was heavy. He, he was burdened for the flock. I see, I, I believe that Paul not only prayed along with others in public prayer, but I believe also he prayed in private. And the heart of the man in private has been revealed. He, 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 he interceded on their behalf so that these goals that he had for them would be fulfilled and realized. Now look at verse 2. Here's what he prayed for, that their heart might be comforted. We'll pause there. He prayed for their encouragement. See, God's people were fearful. Fearful for themselves, their families, fearful for the future, fearful because of the actics and announcements of the false teacher. Remember the psalmist said, what time I'm afraid, I will trust in the Lord. Here's a people that were about to lose heart at Colossae. People about to give up. What's the point? No use. Might as well close the door. Isn't that what many are saying, especially about small works today? Isn't that what the devil wants? Here's the, the activity and mindset of the devil. Close the door and put the light out. Remember, he never gives up. Remember, he never plays fair. Remember, he's full of deceptive means. And so often we, we forget that. 
And we can apply that to ourselves and, and to the congregation. And what do God's people need individually and congregationally? Well, 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 they need a new heart in that sense. And here's a man of God saying a thousand miles away, well, well for you I am praying. And one of the things that I'm praying for is for your encouragement that you might be strengthened in your heart, that you might be comforted. No matter what you're going through, don't give up. Look up. Even though you can't trace his hand, trust in him. Did Nehemiah not say, Nehemiah 8 and 10, the joy of the Lord is our strength? You see, he wanted them because when someone feels down and discouraged and despair and you go alongside and talk to them and share some thoughts, offer prayer. Well, they do feel better. You're bringing to them a word of encouragement. And you're telling them to rejoice in the Lord always. Not in your circumstances, but rejoice in the Lord. Notice he also prayed not only for their encouragement, for their endearment. Note the words here. Being knit together in love. Isn't that tremendous? Remember, he says, you belong to and you're coming to a loving church family. Now, let's keep in mind the context. There was a heretical false cult attacking the church. Heretical false teachers had come up and taught a different gospel. Talked about a different Lord Jesus Christ, energized by a different spirit. And some had left the church in Colossae. And others were tempted to follow suit. And these false teachers were denying the gospel. They were denying the sonship, eternal sonship and deity of Jesus Christ. They were denying his penal and substitutionary blood atonement. And many were discouraged. Many were in doubt. Many were in despair. And what did Paul want them to remember? He wanted them to remember this, that they were knit together in love. In other words, he wanted to remember that they were a family. Being knitted together means that they're joined together. Think of stitches. Not just a, a ball of long stringy wool, but it, it was actually knit together in, in, in a pattern. Some kind of garment had been made. That's the picture. Not only he wants them to have a, a strong, comforted heart, that's a necessity, but he wants them to remember that they belong to the family of God, that they're together in this conflict, that they're united together, that they've all been joined in a saving union with Christ, and they're therefore part of a spiritual family, that they're part of a, a family unit. You see, Paul wanted that church to be united, unified, as he says, knit together in love. Remember, isn't this part of Christ's prayer for his church? John 17, verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. That's a true spiritual organic unity, not, not, not an organizational kind of unity. Certainly not a false ecumenical unity, but a true spiritual unity in Christ. Now, can you hear Paul's concern? It's an essential quality. He has a heartfelt love and concern for them, and he wants them to have a heartfelt love and concern for each other. 
And Paul's connecting this. You're part of a loving family, part of a loving fellowship. You've been knit together in love. Be peacemakers with each other. Don't, don't be troublemakers. Don't be selfish. Don't cause division. Why? Because you've been knit together in love. You're part of a loving family. And of course, if you love each other, then you will pray for each other. Paul says, I have you on my heart. I'm thinking of you day and daily. I, I, I pray for you all the time. Because we're knit together in love. You're, you're my brother, sister. You're part of my family. You see, this kind of praying isn't easy. This kind of praying is hard and difficult. It's connected to these words, great conflict or great agonizing. Remember, he's, he's battling with the devil. The devil hates true love. The devil loves loathing. But if we have a heartfelt concern for each other, those that are strong, those that are weak, those that have sinned and fallen by the wayside, remember Bible believing Christianity is a matter of the heart. And true love from an inwardly pure heart is a powerful weapon in the hand of God. Not, not mere outward conformity, not keeping up appearances, not putting on an image, but, but totally committed to a loving church family. That's their endearment. Notice their enrichment. He says, And unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding. Riches of full assurance. Riches of knowing, knowing who you are. Riches of knowing all that we have in Christ. You see, sometimes we could live like a pauper because we forget who we are. We could forget the riches that we have in Christ. Or we could live like sons and daughters of a king and use all the vast resources of the kingship that we have in Christ. You see, in Christ is the key. He, he, he mentions unto all the riches of the full assurance of understanding. The word understanding has to do with our mind. It has to do with our thought process. And once we begin to think biblically and fill our mind with this, who we are and what we have in Christ, then, then what a difference that makes on the journey. See, how many today lack real assurance? How many forget as they go through life with all its pressures, its problems, all its circumstances, forget I'm a child of the king. Forget whose son or daughter they are. And therefore they lack assurance. And once we begin to lack assurance and forget who we are, then we, we neglect the word. We're not letting the king speak to us day by day. We don't let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And when we neglect the word, we neglect prayer. And when we neglect prayer, we're neglecting our dependence and power of the Spirit working in through us. And once we begin to neglect the Word and neglect prayer and neglect the Spirit, then we begin to neglect the family and fellowship of God's people. And then we, we lapse into ignorance and, and, and lack discernment. Is it any wonder we fail? Is it any wonder we go through life with all its uh, struggles and be full of worry and fret? Here's our enrichment. Unto all the riches of the full assurance of understanding. Notice something else. Their enlightenment. Notice these words. To the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. 
in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now here's a mighty statement of purpose. Paul says, I'm praying for their encouragement, their endearment. I'm praying for their enrichment, but I'm also praying for their enlightenment, that they might acknowledge the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. You see, he's countering the false teachers. See, the teachers talk about secret knowledge, secret wisdom. Come and join our group, be part of our church. But it's not in our group. It's not in the church. It's in Christ. For in whom, that's Christ, are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's a knowledge of Christ. Young people, that's the greatest knowledge in the world. The greatest knowledge that you could have is to know God in Christ. John 17, 3 and 4. And therefore, if we have a knowledge of God in Christ, we'll be a a Christ-centered church. And you see, this full assurance of understanding results in the acknowledgement of the mystery of God. And the mystery of God is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And the true church that's Christ-centered will be a Bible-believing church. The Bible, of course, is the only source of divine revelation. Two testaments, one Bible, and we need both. Without the new, we would not properly understand the old. Without the old, we would not properly understand the new. And in the old and in the new, Christ is promised and Christ is proclaimed. And you see, the preacher is not to tickle the ears of the people, not to make them feel good, not to tell them little stories, but be like a doctor. If somebody's sick, what do they need to hear from the doctor? You're sick. And here's the prognosis. Here's the reason and root of the sickness. And here's how I can diagnose and help that. The true church, of course, is Christ-centered. It'll not only be Bible-believing, but it'll be a spiritual discerning church. It'll discern truth. It'll discern error. And that's a rare commodity today. If you say you're a Bible-believing church and you've got a true spiritual discerning ability, you'll be deemed judgmental, you'll be deemed intolerant, you'll be deemed unloving. I heard of a pastor, and he stood up to preach, and this was a subject, what the Bible says about abortion. One of his elders opposed him. He said, you, you, you can't be dogmatic. And the preacher said, but I can. Because if there's a clear Bible doctrine, I have to set it forth. And I have to set forth the the moral issues of the day. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians 4 and 14, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. The true church that's Christ-centered will uh, strive to understand all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ. You see, our full assurance comes from that understanding and knowing God in the mystery of Christ. That's connected to Christ's person and work. Formally concealed in the Old Testament scriptures. He was there. He was hidden from our view. But he was there to the spirit of discernment through the spirit. But now Christ is in full view. The true church that's Christ-centered will promote and practice precious unity. And that true unity will come from that biblical truth that the church stands for. It will certainly not be divorced from that truth. 
And therefore the pastor, the people will, will defend the gospel. They'll not deny the gospel. They'll be willing to, to die for the gospel. See, we live in a day when there's a battle and a fight for the true gospel. And sadly, some churches are more interested in style and methods and interested in numbers and interested in finance. And if we get to a certain number and have a little finance, then let's close the door. But where's the interest in the glory of God? Where's the, the, the desire to be truly scriptural and sound in, in the preaching of sound biblical doctrine and biblical ethics? Once we lose interest in the glory of God and grossly neglect the scriptural and sound doctrine of the person and work of Christ and lose sight of true biblical ethics, then what impact has it got on the church and the wider community? The true church that's Christ-centered will be a, a stable, disciplined church. Stable against the flashy, trendy, sensational, fleshly kind of church that's abroad today. And it's all here. To the acknowledgement of the mystery of God. Once we acknowledge that mystery, then we realize we're shut into a Christ-centeredness. And if we're truly Christ-centered, we'll be Bible-believing, We'll be a spiritually discerning church. We'll strive to understand all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in him. We'll seek to promote and practice precious unity. And we will seek to be a strong, disciplined, stable church. That's the purpose of this conflict. That's what he prayed for. Notice finally, the presentation of this conflict. I've asked myself this. He says in verse 1, For I would that ye would know. For I would that ye knew. Why, why was Paul sharing this little biographical truth to them about his common practice in prison at Rome? Why was he praying that they might be encouraged? That they might be endeared to one another? That they might be enriched? That, that they might be enlightened? Because that's what he's praying for. For them, Colossae, Laodicea, and Heriopolis, for as many as not seen my face. I've already told you that the word agonize, the word conflict, is a picture of prayer. See, this wasn't easy. Paul was exercising himself. He's exerting himself like a wrestler before God, with God on their behalf. You see, he's spiritually striving in prayer. Because God works in and through prayer. Do we not pray to the Father in the name of the Son under the energy and power of the Holy Spirit? Remember what Paul says in Romans 8, Likewise the Spirit also helpeth our infirmity, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints, according to the will of God. You see, the Spirit of God who works in us teaches us the Word of God, brings it to our attention, our thoughts. And through the Word of God, we begin to get a knowledge of what the will of God is for our lives. And then we, we wait on Him. Is it not true there's times we don't feel like praying? Is it not true that pastors and people alike fail in this area? 
Remember Samuel said, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord and ceasing to pray for you. See, Paul's thinking, how can I silence the accusation of the enemy? How can I stir the affections of the family? And the key was to give himself to prayer. As far as Paul was concerned, the private public prayer was the powerhouse of the church. It was like the engine room of the ship. He doesn't want God's people to despair. He doesn't want them to lose heart. He doesn't want them to be discouraged. So he gives them this little thought. I'm not only suffering on your behalf and speaking for you, but I'm supplicating God's throne for you. And here's what I'm asking for. Because I want you to know that I'm praying for you. And when somebody says, I'm praying for you, it's not a great encouragement. I'm praying for you when you go to the mission field. I'm praying for you when you get into the pulpit. I'm praying for you when you leave the house and, and come back into the house. See, he wanted them to learn from his example. He wanted them to pray too. So he has given them this little snippet of information. It's from a true pastor's heart. He's not been proud. He's not been boastful. He's been very humble. But he presents this to them for this reason. That he wants them to be encouraged. To be endeared. Be enriched. Be enlightened. In the knowledge that Paul is praying for us. And what a mighty truth that is. I remember many, many years ago an incident happened in Rosie and Mai's life and we got a phone call. It was the late Dr. Paisley. And he said to me in his own way, with a pastor's heart, David, Eiling and I will be praying for you. Now, we were in the valley. We were in the depths. We were heartbroken. And that very thought from the lips of God's servant, even though it was the wire of the telephone, he wasn't face to face. Eiling and I'll be praying for you. What encouragement that brought for us to also go to God and thank the Lord that someone was praying for us. That's the presentation of this Conflict. That's why he included it, to encourage God's people to follow his example to pray. Here's the conflict and the comfort of a man of God. And I pray this morning that we'll get this picture. We'll realize the goal that was behind it, the purpose in his prayer, and why he presented it. And that we will give ourselves to prayer for each other and for this congregation and for our community at this time. The Lord bless you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for listening today.